Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, I'm Coach, and this is episode 83. And this week, we're back to training insights, nutrition fueling, um, strategy, execution, and all the things that we need to help us become better ultra-endurance athletes. And we're back to me trying to share as much as I can with regards to helping you maximize the limited training time you have as you're preparing for any type of endurance or ultra-endurance activity, goal, event, adventure, expedition, desired outcome, growth, whatever that is. And so first and foremost, it's again, welcome you, welcoming you to being part of my world with regards to this podcast. Uh, I just sort of talk a lot, a lot about different aspects that I think would be helpful to so many of you with regards to training. And most of the cues come from what my athletes are asking and wondering about or would love to hear more about or a better description of or more depth into why we're doing it. And that's a lot of what this podcast is in preparing the ultra endurance athletes that I coach and endurance athletes that I coach into having the best possible narrative and understanding as to why they're doing the training that they're doing, having a better understanding of what they're observing, having a better um, depth of knowledge in order to be better, stronger, smarter, faster with regards to everything that they're taking on. And those adventures vary across the board, anywhere from, you know, triathlon, of course, and Ironmans and half Ironmans and Ultramans and multiple Ironmans on multiple continents and so forth, to ultra runs, to all kinds of crazy adventures. And um, difficulty too varies across all the athletes. So that's what this podcast is about. And I love it. And a lot of uh, a lot of people have asked me over the past few weeks why I do and, and have thanked me for the podcast, but also said, man, you, you put a lot of time in. I think we've um, cataloged 160 plus hours in the meantime here on the podcast. But one thing I always say about this podcast is it's sort of my way to thank all the coaches and all the people that helped me in my years of swimming and triathlon and ultra endurance and running and adventures that I've done and sort of paying respect and honoring them by continuing to take that knowledge and passing it on. Um, it's only as good as how I can take the nugget that they gave me selflessly and with a lot of trust and confidence that I think I will pass on their knowledge as well, and not necessarily coming from me, but um, knowing that they're passing it on so that I can continue to pass it on. And some of these athletes and coaches and people that have come in and out of my life over the past 40 years of doing athletics, no more, I've talked about this before, um, probably 45 years of doing athletics, but those first few years, I don't remember my coaches. Um, but for 40 years, just having all kinds of amazing, amazing people share um, with me selflessly and encourage me and support me. And so that's my contribution, my give back these days. And this is the best way I know how to impact as many people as I can. And even if it just impacts two people, that at least 
they are better informed and have a better depth of knowledge and feel better prepared for their next adventure in the ultra endurance world as well as the endurance world that they are willing to get outside get into nature get reconnected with their body um, listen to their body go inside themselves and and become healthier and fitter and stronger and more aware and grow and taking all that and then growing even more and getting even more fitter and taking on adventures that are even further outside of the boundary of what they thought they were capable of. So yes, so that's this week, um, back to triathlon and endurance and ultra endurance and execution and all that talk. So with that, I right away jump into it with a guest. That guest was an athlete that had reached out to me and wanted to get more information on how to be, how to train for an ultra endurance event. In this case, a 24 hour tough mutter. And I said, you know, how about we discuss it on the podcast? And I go into that a little bit detail on how that came about and why I'm recording it now. And that'll be coming up next. I also talk about mindset talk a lot about on the back end of this podcast about the the different ways we can go from being Clark Kent to Superman and using that phone booth, um, that changing booth, that um, reset booth to come out of whatever it is we were doing before and entering our workouts and being able to do them to the best of our ability immediately not taking a long time to clear our mind and reset and find the purpose and the best possible outcome of the workout, but instead right away know what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, how we're going to stay positive and focus on getting the best value and possible outcome out of the 45, 60, 90, 120 minutes we might only have today. And then going back to becoming, being a partner, a husband, a wife, a mother, a family member, a leader, a CEO, a employee, an employer, a team leader, a project manager, all those things, navigating to being an athlete and quickly navigating back to being whatever it is we are for the rest of our day. And those changing booths, those phone booths that we go from Clark Kent to Superman and Superman back to Clark Kent, if we can maximize those and use those reset booths to the best of our ability with regards to a good mindset coming in and out of those, I think we can maximize a lot more of our day. And so I talk about that. And then finally, I talk a little bit about the human side of triathlon. I, uh, Got some really nice race reports this last week, and I read something out of that um, that I thought was, you know, really, really nice to hear. So enjoy this week, episode 83, and uh, please let me know what you think. I have another uh, interview lined up already for next week. So um, if you like these calls or these check-ins with athletes, please let me know. I'm always curious to get your feedback. I love getting it. And if it's something you like and enjoy and want to hear more of, I'm always glad to do it. Enjoy. So this week I have a follow-up with somebody who had emailed me um, about their training and what they were looking to improve upon and how they wanted to grow in their respective sport, discipline, adventure. 
And in this case, Eric had sent me an email and he had mentioned some of the challenges he's facing with his training. And he had talked in that email that he would love to work with me, but more importantly, have a couple of conversations with me. And he doesn't have a lot of money, but am I open to talking through my training and giving input? Um, would love to test my lactate too. I could meet you if you are in LA, if you are in the LA area. Thoughts? So I, about six weeks ago, well, maybe even more, two, three months ago, in the meantime, reached out to him and or responded back to him on email and said, listen, um, if you would like to discuss this on a podcast, that way I think a lot of people can benefit by your questions and sort of hear from me live in the, tra in the podcast how I give you sort of um, training updates as well as just live in the moment respond to your questions versus any type of um, prepared wording here on the podcast. And I think you all notice over many podcasts that I never really prepare for the podcast. I just start talking. But anyway, I thought this would be a helpful way to go about it. Well, um, in my uh, prep for the call via Skype, I had tested the recording and the mic level and so forth so that it was properly recording. But then when we had our conversation that was about 30 minutes long, <laughs> I didn't hit record properly or I must have hit the button twice. And so the benefit was that he got all his training information and insights and needs covered for the last six to eight weeks. I mean, he emailed me on June 6th and I responded back with regards to the podcast and wanting to record it on, in mid-June. So, uh, you know, that's July, August, you know, that's almost three months ago. And so he has been training off of that information that we exchanged then since. And so I thought I would follow up today with a call and check in with him. And he knows that I um, didn't record the podcast properly. Um, and I checked in with him to say, hey, it'd be great if we can record again or make this a second attempt and get sort of a check-in on your training, any questions you have, what effects or how the, the progress has been going, if anything that I said has been helpful and how, what you're noticing and feeling, and some questions from there. Because again, I think that will provide value. And so I uh, did that today with Eric. And um, I wanted to share that with you next on the podcast. So enjoy. He's getting ready for a 24-hour um, Tough Mudder obstacle course type racing. So you need endurance and strength and all kinds of different um, abilities for it. And we talked about it three months ago, but now it's getting closer. It's on November 9th. And so I thought, yeah, this would be cool to share all this with all of you. And I have no idea how the conversation will go. And so from that, you get to sort of hear how my coaching approach works with some of the athletes. So welcome. We'll try this again the second time um, with regards to going over some of these questions as well as what's unique now and what it has, it has become from me misrecording last time is that um, I also get to sort of do a follow-up check-in on how you're doing with regards to the training 
of the last, what was it, six weeks now, I would say? Yeah, about about six weeks, yeah. Yeah, and so to put some background upon this, um, you had reached out with regards to an email and your coaching and your training, excuse me, for your first Tough Mudder 12-mile obstacle course race. Not first one, excuse me, for um, a longer one, right? 24 hour. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so you had given me some background with regards to what you've done so far. And, um, but you wanted to talk through my training and get input. And uh, so I said, well, why don't we just record that on the podcast? Because the questions that you may have might be interesting to many others as well. And so there we were, we recorded probably a good 30 minutes and I forgot to hit record <laughs> or I miss hit the button. I think I hit it twice or something like that. And it just didn't record. So all that good conversation went away with regards to benefits for everybody else. But the good thing is you got the information you needed. Yeah, so, it benefited me a lot. Thank you. Yeah. So what I would love to do is sort of maybe um, do a brief recap of your notes of what you captured from last time of what I recommend, recommend, recommended that. And then, um, sort of a check-in on how things are going and how it's working, if it was awful recommendations or if it's working out and sort of where you are right now. Okay. Well, originally I called because I'm training for a 24-hour uh, obstacle course, Tough Mudder race, um, five-mile loop with 20 obstacles. And uh, I've done most of my training is zone two, like probably 95% of my training is zone two heart rate on trail and then a little bit of body workout and my questions originally were I feel like I need to do more of that more zone fours and fives and go harder and also hit the weights harder so you told me that I probably needed to increase my um, zone four and five like 20 to 30 percent and then scale it up as I get closer to November so um, I've taken your advice and I've um, tried running harder and faster and that's been good, but I've noticed um, my body has taken a little bit longer to adjust to that. Yeah. And the next thing I've done is I've also done a CrossFit, and I've done CrossFit about three weeks now, about three three or four times a week, and that's helped my uh, grip strength a lot. Um, so that's been helpful. Okay. And and when you say, with regards to the percentages of your um, zone three and four work. A percentage of about how many hours per week are we talking about here? Well, I'm trying to stay out of zone three because I think that's not very helpful. I'm trying to do zone four and five. Okay. It's probably, I don't know, like try, I'm trying to do like three hours. If I'm doing 10 hours a week, I'm trying to do three hours of that. In total? Total. Mm -hmm. In, and spread out throughout the week. Exactly. Yeah. So important there is that you're hopefully still staying quite connected to your zone two work. Yes. Where you're focused on technique, posture, um, you know, sort of the quality of movements versus the intensity of movements. And um, never compromising on fundamentals when it comes to your technique and your posture and your footwork and all the pieces that you need for a good um, OCR event, obstacle course race event, because it is a full body experience in, in many aspects with regards to the terrain, the challenges and so forth. And despite it all, 
you're still doing most of the terrain running and moving across terrain. Yes, so yes. your ability to do something for 10 hours, um, how long do you think it'll take? It's a 24 hour race. Yeah. So your so yeah. So your goal, goal is to move 20, actually it's 25 and a half hours. So my goal is to be moving, you know, at least 23 hours of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so now it's a question of, you know, besides the zone two work um, and sprinkling in the zone four, zone five work, I would imagine that we would want to increase the zone two work while remaining steady at the zone four, zone five volume so that okay. you can start incorporating endurance while remaining um, connected and strong to the zone four, zone five work. And But, but before we go into that, how is the zone four, zone five work going? Uh, it's, it's it's hard. Like I enjoy going hard, um, but I just notice like in my recovery is a little bit. I feel more tired and a lot more hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm having to that's throwing off my nutrition a little bit. So I'm trying to because I'm also trying to change my body composition and lose. I'd like to lose about eight pounds, but also gain a little muscle. So that between that and the CrossFit, I it's kind of messed up my nutrition. So I have to figure out. Like I'm more hungry because I'm doing more zone five, four and five plus cross work. So I'm trying to figure that out. My yeah. body's a hard time adjusting a little bit to that. Yeah. And, and as you can imagine, um, doing that type of high intensity, it's a huge tax on the body. Yes. Glucose yes. levels and the burn rate and metabolism is completely different um, at that higher intensity versus the go all day pace, primarily burning fats. Um, you're on the far end of the spectrum when it comes to how our engine burns, right? The yeah. lower intensities, just like a hybrid car, is primarily battery powered. And as we move up through the zones, three and four, um, but primarily three, you're going to be in the middle of using battery power supplementing with some gasoline engine. And yeah. now you've worked your way up past um, three and into upper four and five where you are primarily probably exclusively gasoline in this case for you glycogen um, yeah and so therefore um, the burn rate is so incredibly high but it's also very inefficient right you go through those stores very very quickly then i get hungry <laughs> yes and you also have to prepare for it prior um, yes. with regards to um, being not necessarily topped off, but having enough in your system so, so that it has the fuel needed in the gas tank to do that higher intensity um, work. So that's a big component there. Um, and then talk to me about the, uh, the CrossFit. It, you're doing that for just general body integrity, chassis integrity, core yeah. strength and so forth? Core strength, I told my coach, uh, core strength and um, grip strength primarily. Mm -hmm. And also it's a lot of zone, uh, It's we do some good warm-up and strength, but then at the end there's always like a, a six-minute to 25-minute zone four or five workout, like a hit workout, which I enjoy. Yeah. And I've noticed that um, a lot of people when they're done, they're laying on the floor dying, and I'm, I'm still on my feet and like I'm fine because I think I've done so much other training, my cardio is super strong. Yeah, so that's nice. Like, like I can do the whole workout and I'm 
like I'm fine. Like I'm like I, I, a lot of times after I do CrossFit, I go out and do a three and a half mile trail run like right after. Yeah, um, and so there I, you want to be super careful okay. um, that that three and a half mile trail run is light, easy. Yeah. Recruiting, oh, yeah, zone two. I zone two that one. Yeah, light, yeah. easy, recruiting muscle groups that are um, needed for your um, for your activity, but not stressing them in any way. Yeah. Because we can get too much quality, and that's, that's dependent on individual, how you respond to it, right? So yes. maybe 30 to 40% is too much for you, but we don't know that yet. The other question I would have is... Well, how have you determined those zones? Um, I'm basically just using my map, my walk um, app, and then typing in my age and weight and gender and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I need to, love to get lactate uh, testing at that uh, place in Santa Monica. I'm trying to get over there. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's helpful. But also, I would until then get to the track and do the the field test because what you'll find is that. Those apps and those phone, um, those uh, watch data is very much for the general populace and okay. not somebody that has an engine that has been um, primed for many years, as yeah. well as, you know, they defer to a very safe number because of okay. the risks, of course, with liability with a large populace. So I would really try to... Um, Home, uh, drill down on making sure that the zones are very accurate to you because as you've noticed the higher you get with your intensity in the zones and this applies for everybody is the more critical two three four heartbeats are <laughs> yeah oh, absolutely so, i did the Mount baldy run last monday and i got my, my heart rate hit 170 for a little bit and i had a step off course i wanted to bring it down for a little bit because i felt too high yeah yeah and so therefore like 166 probably would have felt way more in control than 170 way better than 170 exactly yeah. so the accuracy <laughs> of those last few heartbeats becomes quite critical and so yes. that's why the, the the data you really want to make sure it's pretty accurate and pretty um, individual to you. So how do I do the track? How do I do that track thing? I've heard you on the podcast say it before. But what do I do again? Yeah, so it's five times one mile with okay. a with a one minute rest, and the one mile effort is basically ten k effort, ninety to ninety five percent effort. Because you're doing five times one mile, it's only one mile is shorter than a ten k. So you okay. really want to put forth almost all out best effort. And okay. from that, we can derive zone four running numbers um, and also apply that to cycling and other activities. And then we can go backwards from there in order to determine th zone two and three. But basically, with the five times one mile number, we throw out the highest and lowest value in heart rate and we okay. throw out the highest and lowest value in pace. Um, Got it. Now, the two don't correlate often. So maybe the highest heart rate is um, not necessarily the highest or lowest pace. So take the, throw out the two independent of each other. Yes. And then from that, the three data points you have in heart rate, the average of that is basically somewhere in zone four. It depends on how 
um, far apart they are and which numbers they were. So I can help you with that if you send me that. And then uh, so from the pace, the average of the three is basically your threshold running pace. That doesn't depend on how long it took you to get there. Those numbers are pretty accurate. So basically you can use that and, and any listener can use that as their zone for um, or anaerobic threshold, lactate threshold running number. It's pretty close. It's not down to the the second, but you're within a 10 second range to, to have feel pretty good about it. And the now, part, is it, you start, well, basically I start with what my heart, check my heart rate before I run the mile and then after the one mile I write down the heart rate and then I rest for a minute. Yeah, I would, um, it's I always the, goal, then I start my heart rate for a second, second mile and then run and then I check my heart rate again and then rest for a minute. Yeah, you can do the starting heart rate. It's not quite as important as the finishing heart rate. So you want no. the heart rate after each mile, not to, not to begin. Now, it does help us down the road to use the beginning heart rate because that way you can see how quickly you're recovering, your heart rate's yeah. recovering back. And it shows you for future tests, and this is something I haven't talked about on the podcast, but I use it every now and then for athletes that test frequently on the track, I would say every six weeks. Um, it shows how quickly your heart rate recovers and how fatigued you are. If it takes longer for it to recover versus past tests, past data sets, you can see there's something deeper creating the fatigue. Whereas as we all know, when we're rested and recovered, tapered, even fresh for a race, the heart rate pops quickly, but recovers quickly as well. Yeah. And so it's an extra data set. Now, you don't necessarily need it for determining zones. It's more down the road, a data set to see, okay, is something going on? Am I getting sick? Is something weird about my training that I am not recovering effectively? Yeah, I noticed um, last week I did a run, Baldy run to the top, and then I did a Tough Mudder on uh, 11 mile race on Saturday and 11 mile race on Sunday. And I only pressed hard on two of those, and the third one I was with my family. But I noticed when I tried to work out this week, my heart rate was higher than normal uh, after I took a couple of days off, and I realized like I needed to take a little bit more time. Well, yeah, but that isn't necessarily that. It could also uh -huh. be that you're fresh, oh, right? Okay. So that's a question of our individual way we respond to the training and our fitness levels and our length of training and depth of endurance. Um, lots of athletes are surprised that when they get closer to their event, to their races, how quickly their heart rate jumps and how high it jumps because it's, that's a sign of freshness. The heart is quite responsive. Um, and that's why a lot of times athletes ask me, well, I, I've done so much training at zone two and a little bit at zone three. How do you expect me to race at zone three for a marathon or for a half Ironman or something like that? And I'm like, well, because when your heart is fresh, it will feel, it will jump into zone three quite easily. And it will, zone three, we want zone three to feel like zone two. Yeah, that makes sense. Like your go all day pace because you're fresh and you're responsive and so forth. So, how long is it okay to be in zone four and five? Because I did the Mount Baldy run. It's like a, a, between an hour and fifty-five minutes to two hours and ten, and I was in zone four and five the whole time. Um, if if it's an event or it's a focused day or if that was your desired outcome for that workout, then go yeah. for it. Yeah, okay. then then apply the stimulus effectively. 
It's just yeah. we can't sort of waver in the process and go, oh, look, my heart rate's high today. Therefore, I will do this all at this high heart rate. Because that then has a trickle-down effect on the remaining workouts for the week or the stimulus or the, the overall desired outcome with this training phase. And so then you're constantly adjusting the training, whether you're coached or not. And that becomes a challenge overall for a lot of athletes when they feel good on a certain day and they just sort of go for it. Well, that has a trickle. Exactly. It has a trickle down effect. And as I always say on the podcast and all my athletes know is what you do incorrectly or do too hard or attacks yourself too much today will not show up tomorrow or in two days. It shows up in 10, 12, 14 days because overall the general effect of the training now has crept over the ledge, over the edge. That was a race, so that that feels okay. And it was above 6,000 feet elevation at 10,000 feet. So that was taxing my heart in a different way. Yeah, and that's fine as long as you give yourself a couple days of recovery. I did, yeah. And and again, those are things that you want to note like um, for future reference. And I ask a lot of my athletes to do this. And that is just notice, how long did it take me to recover from said effort, um, that zone four, zone five effort? And many athletes recognize that, okay, after three, four days, I felt okay physically, but when I asked my body to do any type of work, it was not there. It sort of fizzled out like a false start in a car, right? You're like, wah, 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 wah. Um, So then you note that, and then you notice, all right, it took me about another three, four days also for the depth of my effort in training to be back as well. Um, I felt good after, after three days, I felt really good. Good. And there's always a training effect from a zone four, zone five effort. It definitely pushes us along. But again, if we allow it to settle in properly, um, it should be okay. If we ask ourselves to jump on it too quickly, then, um, you know, 10 days from now, you might feel a little flat. So be aware, just observe how you how you respond. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think nutrition might be one of the bigger factors for me because like, now I'm really hungry, but I'm also trying to change body composition. And so like the zone four and five, I think is great. My body's absorbing it for the most part as I adjust, but my nutrition is being thrown off. Yeah. And, and that's, (laughs) yeah. And that's a common theme that I talk to a lot of athletes about, and it's been coming up more and more lately with regards to the podcast is, you know, we can't look to lose weight and have a a training stimulus at the same time. It's asking too much of our body. It's being pulled in one direction on the one end of the spectrum by if we're limiting our calories or trying to lose weight, which losing weight means, you know, we're burning more than we're putting in. So yes, we're limiting our calories based off of what it needs. But on the other end, we're also looking to get stronger, fitter, better, faster, smarter with regards to how our body responds to said effort or intensities and so it needs to be fueled and met it's the same thing as we talked about earlier with that hybrid engine if you also keep that battery level low or don't properly fill up the gasoline in that hybrid car one of the two engines will just not have the power needed to have the the stimulus the effect and so it's pick one or the other i need to either like lose weight for a month 
or I need to continue my training in a different way. I can't try to do both at the same time. Yeah, right? but and in my opinion, um, and again, nutrition is very individual, but overall the general theme should be for our body that the consistent training and the balance of your training should also create enough lean muscle mass and gradually shed anything extra that's not part of the process of the effort required, meaning yeah. the engine will shed what it doesn't need in order to move optimally forward at its best, right? And yeah. so that is usually excess weight and it will turn and, and create more lean muscle mass in order to help you facilitate moving forward and, and efficiently and for the effort and the output it continuously recognizes. And then everything else, it will gradually work on shedding via metabolism. But you can help that along by being smart on your diet, not restrictive on your diet, but smart on your nutrition. Yeah, I need to get better at that. Yeah, that's what we usually find, Emily, in this case, my wife, my, my wife, my better half in this case, and I, that many aren't focused enough on the um, improvement and the quality of the fuel they're putting in versus trying to restrict what they're putting in by losing weight that way, right? Yes, yes. A better quality food versus restriction. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because a higher quality food, you you're gonna you're gonna eat better and a little bit proper calories, anyways. Well, there's you know, that. I get so hungry, I just want to eat like a whole loaf of bread. Like car, I get really carb hungry. Yeah, but that's you the know? glycogen. That's the yeah, glycogen yeah. from your higher intensity efforts. It's a very common thing to see. So you want to have choices in your surroundings, whether at work, in this case at church, or at um. In your, uh, in your office or in your fridge at home that you have choices that you know are not going to pull you into a loaf of bread. But, you know, there's carbs in fruit. There's carbs in vegetable. There's tons of carbs in salads and so forth. There's carbs. Is fruit a good recovery food, you think? It is. It is okay. a very good recovery food. Now, you might want to mix it up. You don't want to be too um, um, restrictive on that. Um, yeah. smoothies and recovery shakes and some um, collagen and yeah. some things like that are great as recovery because you're also getting your vitamin C, your vitamins in there, some aminos and some protein that mixes with the carbs so that it's a better balance for your body to absorb. And back to yeah. what we were saying with the quality going in, remember, if the quality of the food is high, it will not only satisfy the needs of your glycogen stores and what the engine wants, but it will also continue to help optimize shed what it doesn't need. And if the quality, if the high octane gasoline going in is burned, burned cleanly, there is no leftover. So you're not creating more um, leftover materials that will be stuck on your body. Got it. That makes sense. I need to focus on that more. Yeah. Yeah. That's my weak link. As I'm sleeping well, I try to get eight, eight and a half hours of sleep and my training seems strong. It's just the food is my weakness, I think. Yeah. And so surround yourself with, with yeah. quality foods and it's a commitment. I get it. It's, um, it <laughs> it's, it's thinking ahead and art. Remember glycogen is a dangerous game because you know, a Snickers bar, immediately satisfies you. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. very, as a, there's truth in that commercial, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but, 
And glycogen blood sugar uh, really messes with your head. You just want immediate satisfaction because it is such a, a quick effect. So really um, committing to having good choices of fruits and vegetables and nuts and um, you know a variety of different products is much better. And bread is fine, but let's say you put something effective on there so that it's not bread only filling you up and instead <laughs> you know, some almond butter, some bananas, some walnuts and stuff like that. Yeah, it's hard because I like cheese. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, again... Um, we we don't want to be too restrictive and too um, monk like with regards to all of this. Yeah. And cheese is fine, but you know, choose the amount of cheese you want to have for the day, and then go by that. Another big thing with regards to diet and nutrition is the body loves a steady dose of anything, and so if one day we eat, let's say in this case, cheese. To a lot of cheese because we just had a craving for it or we're just saying, okay, I'm just going to reward myself today with cheese and I like cheese and I worked out hard cheese um, and justifying it that way, cheese. Um, yeah. Then the body doesn't, all of a sudden it gets this big load of, da- of cheese and then it, it doesn't know what the daily input, steady input is. Whereas if you have the same amount, ratio, percentage of cheese in your daily diet where you say, okay, I have a a total of you know 300 grams of cheese a day. Let's just say an arbitrary number like that. Yes. But if that's the average, it knows how to process that better than a big swings in the amounts of any food. And so it gets very efficient. It is always looking for homeostasis for the easiest, most efficient way. That's how our body is optimized. That makes sense. Yeah, that's helpful. What other questions do you have with regards to your training? Um, I just think, I think just um, I'm trying to adapt to adding the CrossFit and adding the Zone Four and Five workouts. I'm just trying to figure out the rhythm of because I had so much of the Zone Two and a little body work weight workouts and my sleep and recovery all like dialed and like almost perfect. Now that I'm throwing in CrossFit and more Zone Four and Five, I'm having a like having a harder time. Re- finding the recovery and the pacing in that. Yeah. So any input on that would be helpful. Like, do I spread it out more? Like, I don't, I'm trying to figure out the, like, when do I go? Like, do I go to CrossFit in the morning? Do I go to CrossFit in the evening? Like, when do I do those workouts? Kind of. Yeah. Well, Yeah, there's a few inputs there. One, let's uh, remember, we said CrossFit on the first call that I didn't record. (laughs) Um, Because it's a great, cross-training stimulus effect for what you want to do. And so I just want to remind the listeners that I'm a fan of CrossFit for the six to 12-week windows and then taking a break, doing some endurance work, um, incorporating all the specific work that we need for the endurance adventure event that we're getting ready for. And then maybe in the second half of the year or a few months later, doing another 12-week session. So that gives you 24 weeks out of the year where you're really working on your chassis integrity, your core, your stability, your explosiveness, your strength, all in a good, healthy way, but also allowing the body to recover and absorb that stress and that work of CrossFit um, effectively. So that's one. Two, don't get caught up in the weekly function of training. Um, It might work better in a uh, 10-day schedule. It might work better in a two-week schedule that you sort of fit it all in with the proper recovery. 
Um, we're playing the game of longevity and time. And so if you need to be in two-week cycles um, in order to get the, all the stimuluses in that you want or 10 days, that's better than trying to fit it all into seven days like we often try to do. Um, that's helpful. Yeah, it's stressful. It's like, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, and I have to rest. And it's like, oh, seven days is not very long. Exactly. So what I often do in my own training, like I can't fit in all the strength and core and stability in, in my week because I have other workouts as well as, you know, just life. <laughs> and so I will take what is usually um, a, a weekly plan for strength and core and stability, and I will spread that out over two weeks for sure. Um, uh -huh. And so I work my way through that plan slower but I know it's working for me. And number two is in that CrossFit and in our functions of our movements, we're already stimulating that more than most when it comes to core and stability and um, strength. So Absolutely. don't discount that. And, okay. and then, yes, space it out. Like I, you can't do too much quality in a row. You can't go too long on quality in one workout. Really optimize and I'd rather do less quality at a higher intensity than trying to find the full 30% or full 40%. So if this week was only 25% or 20% at that zone four, zone five work, but it, I was able to hit the numbers better and at a higher level and better posture form footwork technique, that is more desirable. And then gradually over time, maybe you'll hit 30%. It, 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 that's a, that's a guide. It doesn't have to be the exact number. And do you think three times a CrossFit or four times a CrossFit a week is good? Because I'm kind of using this cycle because my event is November 9th. So I'm trying to really push my uh, grip strength. I've already noticed my grip strength has gotten better because of my last stuff. I was last weekend, I got on the monkey bars and I felt my grip strength was already stronger. Yeah. I felt that improvement. So I want to kind of keep ramping that up in, until November. Yeah, well, you only have about three weeks of, uh, of uh, CrossFit left then because yeah. then you want to start dialing back to three times and two times a week back to zero before okay. your event so that everything is optimized with regards to a taper but less more about um, um, not being fatigued or the body, the system being stressed in any way before the event to really um, absorb and rest and recover and recharge for a week prior to something as long as a 24 or 25 hour event. So, so I should do, if I have, if I have seven weeks to my event, I should only do CrossFit for like three or four more weeks of that and then stop doing CrossFit probably. Of, of that three to four times a week, yes. And then I would probably in four weeks only do two or three times a week for two weeks. And then um, the last week only, or a week, two weeks out only do one time a week and then the final week zero times. Okay, that makes sense. And then, yeah, um, yeah so I also think you got to be careful. Don't overdo three to four times a week of CrossFit along with your other training, along with the intensity is a lot. So um, if, I, I would, if I were you, I would write out my week ahead or two weeks ahead and write my intentions across the top of the page or, or, or type them out on the computer of okay. my intentions, the next 10 day training phase is one longer day for example, to really um, yeah. prep for the uh, endurance event. And so going backwards from that, how am I setting up my training so that that 
longer day is going to help me build in confidence and ability and know and validate my training. And so therefore, I don't want to be too tired coming into that. So maybe 48 hours prior to that, I won't do CrossFit or high intensity. Well, now you start timing your week differently. So, okay, I'll do an intensity workout on Tuesday. I'll do CrossFit on Thursday in order to have a great possible Saturday long event or whatever day it is, however your weeks line up. And so now what am I filling in the pieces there? Okay, now I have another two CrossFits I need to fit in that week. Well, that doesn't sort of fit because now I'm all of a sudden doing it Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and you know the following Monday. It adds up too much. That's too much. Yeah, it's too much CrossFit. Exactly. So, yeah. so I, that's how I would start going backwards, writing my own plan with regards to what is my intention for this week's phase or this 10-day phase. And if it's that, Okay, if it's looking to really increase my strength, well, let me prioritize my three CrossFits the next 10 days and build the intensity backwards from that where I can gap it properly. And then, you know, one or two endurance workouts. Um, okay. If my intent, my intention is really executing on the high quality better because I've, I've been struggling with that, well, let me place those first and place the proper rest and recharge and recovery around them and then place the CrossFit or the endurance work from there. So you, you, you place your intentions first and you go backwards from there and build yeah. around your week. And, you, and oftentimes what's frustrating about that is like, ugh, I'm running out of time. Well, yeah, then that's okay. I'm okay with that. Exactly. Space okay. it out more, right? Um, Or it's fine to go with um, a a different focus for this 10 day phase. Um, Your body likes that. Like sometimes I focus like a grip week or something because grip, if I don't have grip, I can't do the event, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of times my grip, one year my grip gave out at mile 40, but my legs felt like they still had 20 miles left in them. But if I can't climb up an obstacle, the race is done. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but I mean, grip is something that um, from a standpoint also that you can work on just, you know, sitting around your desk and stuff like that, making sure, um, you know, again, as as you're simulating your obstacle course races, you should be um, looking to focus on those weaker aspects, right? Yeah. I have one one last question. So... Um, what, what's a good time from like my peak mileage week to the actual day of the race for like a taper? Like, is that like the highest week should be like three weeks out, four weeks out and then start the taper? Like I'm still trying to play with the taper. This is my fourth year doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would surely look back at my notes and see how I've done with tapers in the past and how I therefore felt going into the event. Um, the longer we've been doing the sports and the endurance activities, the closer to the event we can still do big volume because it's not going to be that shocking, taxing, stressful on our system. Okay. So therefore, people with a lot of endurance experience, I'm fine with them doing some big stuff two, three weeks out still. Okay. But what I've talked about um, prior on the podcast is instead um, going and gapping the recovery days more in between. So you can still have a big week, let's say a big Wednesday and a big Saturday for a typical week, let's say. But um, then 
Thursday and Friday will be easy days instead of any type of focused training. And then the two days after Saturday may be um, easy days versus any type of focused training. So still volume, but more recovery days in between as we get closer to the event. Then maybe one week out, I still do one big workout or two weeks out. I still do one big workout, but then three recovery days around it so that I'm really absorbing the endurance still, but I'm allowing myself more recovery so it doesn't carry fatigue forward. That makes sense. Yeah, but I would I would um, look at what's worked in the past and how you felt or what you observed and make adjustments from there. But um, as we become more experienced, the closer to the event we can do it. Like two, if your life allows you to sleep and recover properly, two, three weeks out, um, you still can do a lot. Okay. Um, just okay. be, be put the recovery, build it into the week around it. Because if you're sleeping well, eating well, and your life stress is pretty balanced, then yeah, you can still put that tax on the body. If you travel a ton or have projects due in the weeks, but prior to um, the event, and you have other stresses in your life, well, then you don't also want to add training stress, um, because you're not going to be able to recover uh, fully full as a whole body aspect for the 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 output that you will do. Because yeah, I think a lot of times we, we under we, we don't take into effect Life stress, I think, is my biggest. If I'm stressed, like from like work, my pastorate, that is the biggest kicker. Than oh yeah, else. oh yeah. Like, I, I think the stress is worse than sleep. Like if I slept four hours and went for a run, I feel better versus having a lot of stress and sleeping nine hours. I think we have to really watch the stress part. For sure, that's, that that's a big kicker. For sure. I mean, it, again, um, what I always like to remind people of, and if and it's easier to envision, especially. I'm being totally biased here, but yeah. for like um, guys who watch a lot of like Braveheart, Gladiator, um, sort of Middle Ages war movies, right? Those big battles, um, and and women could probably watch that too. I'm just, I only yes. know myself. I'm a guy, um, but they all rest the days prior to these huge battles because they are about to put their body and mind and senses through so much that even in the glorification of it all in the movies, you still see how it's done. Like they, they literally rec were done at, at the end and would rest and recover before the next battle. Like it, they didn't just keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't, they don't glorify that part in the movies, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. They just but, show the fighting and they go, oh, you never rest. Exactly. Then. But um, keep in mind, you're getting your, what you're putting your body through for a 24 hour plus event the stress physically, mentally, cognitively, spiritually, yeah. it just is all very demanding. And the better we can prepare our body for that, the more you can squeeze out of it, out of that sponge when the time comes. Yeah. So. Well, I really appreciate your time, Chris. It's been really helpful. Of course, of course. Really, really helpful. Well, I hope this helps other your other listeners, and I really enjoy your podcast. Well, I appreciate that, and um, I think I hope we covered some good stuff. I'll do a short recap prior um, to this coming on, so that just to say who you are and so on. I didn't even properly <laughs> introduce you. So, um, but yeah, any questions you have, I think they were really well, and let me know how it goes and how you're progressing towards your event. I'd be curious to see. How you're feeling? Yeah.
I'll, I'll let you know for sure. Thank you so much. All right. You have a great day. You too, Chris. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. So I hope that helped everybody with regards to the type of questions and conversation we can have if we want to set up a call like I talked about on the last podcast um, with regards to, you know, if you have questions or want to discuss, discuss the training and sort of work through a variety of topics, I think a conversation is always fun to have. And I think the value of others sort of listening in and hearing um, the thought process versus a calculated description um, is is also fun and it, it, it keeps the conversation going in a more interactive way. So I hope you all enjoyed that and I, I, I would be open and interested in doing more of these sort of ad hoc conversations with people who um, want to write me or give me a shout out with regards to the questions they have, and maybe we set up a call. So thank you for that. All right. The swim was a rolling start with four corrals. When I got to the corral, I froze. The swim at my last race had just hit me. I couldn't step forward, so I stepped aside. The fear of drowning consumed me. A guy who was approaching the corral grabbed my arm and said, if you step in front of me, I'll help get you to the start. I stepped back into the corral and he talked to me until it was my time to go. I started off slow and waited for the panic to set in, but it never came. I read this from a race report to all of you because I think there's two things that are really beautiful in here. One is that in this sport of triathlon, there are still people, humans, like this guy who's willing to help one of my athletes achieve something and overcome a fear and encourage them to get going. And I don't get to see this very often in triathlon anymore. At the front of the race, things are very competitive. Things are very cold and calculated and aggressive, quite honestly. And when I read this, I literally got a soft spot in my heart because this is what endurance, athletics, and sport, and in this case, triathlon, it truly is about. A guy who's willing to help somebody out, who could see somebody was struggling, who could see somebody was tentative, and said, come, let me help you. Let's do this. Because he knows that she wouldn't be standing there if she wasn't prepared to do this race. So it's just a question of a little nudge, a little encouragement, a little support, a little um, standing beside her or beside any athlete. I think that's amazing. The second part of this is I waited for the panic to set in, but it never came. It just shows that we all create a story of um, a fear in our mind that oftentimes is worse than what will actually transpire. And I understand that's how fear is created. That's how worry is created. We paint an image, a scenario in our mind that oftentimes never results in being exactly or being as bad as we had envisioned it. And so us knowing that we're preparing for the worst and the worst will not necessarily or usually or in most cases unfold 
helps us deal with some of the anxiety or panic or fears that we have. So I thought that was a um, valuable piece to read and to also share with all of you because yes, this sport deserves stories like this. Little ones, nothing too major that's gonna change the impact that you it might have on you with regards to the sport, but just there's very, very caring and nice people out there. There's humans out there. Something that comes up as a frequent theme on the podcast, but also surely on how I communicate with my athletes, and that is how I would like them to use the window of their training, of their own self-care, self-focus, health, fitness, um, training time, time to themselves daily, and really work on that window on how they convert themselves and their focus and their mindset to being an athlete. And what I mean by that is that we all have different roles that we play during the day. We're a parent, we're a coworker, we're a boss, we're a leader, we're a father, we're a, you know, a, a partner, we're a husband, we're a wife, we're um, a community member, we're a coach, all kinds of different roles that we play. But as I've talked about a lot on the podcast is our role that when we turn to an athlete needs to be often quite quick, that change in role. That transition from employee, employer, leader, um, CEO, C-level executive, father, mother, whatever it is, to being an athlete is a limited window. And it's also a unique opportunity every day to practice getting ourselves in the right mindset, getting ourselves into the athlete mindset, getting ourselves prepared to turn a switch to change our entire persona for a bit, 60 minutes, 45 minutes, two hours, three hours, whatever the window is, quickly in order to effectively have the best possible training session, performance growth, performance gains, desired outcome, training stimulus. And oftentimes that transition is a little bit too long. And not that that's a negative, it's just that we don't pay as close attention in focusing on transitioning quickly so that we're quickly into the mindset of being an athlete. And I also find that being an athlete and the mindset of switching to being an athlete helps us in races, helps us become more present in races, and helps us recalibrate during our events and during our races and during those times where we need to be at our best. And so I feel we have an opportunity every day to practice some outstanding mindset techniques to switch that over. When we're, um, when we're it was different when we we're younger athletes, kids in high school or college, that we didn't need to shift our roles as much every day. We weren't all these different positions in our day. We were just kids. And then when it was time to do athletics, we just had athletics. There was no... Um, um, baggage, for lack of a better term right now, we would bring into the workout as, as younger kids, as well, high school students, as college kids, nor were there future concerns. We were much more present in the now. Um, we didn't think about future budgets, future projects, future outcomes with our family, with our kids, with our responsibilities, concerns, worries. We didn't think about past um, 
attempts, failures, things we could have done better, worries, concerns, history, all that. We were a lot more present. And so now we have this extra role in our lives, all of you listening in many cases, and for sure my athletes, that we have a role of being an athlete. And in all of these scenarios, we go from one role, one character, one mindset, like I was saying, in our jobs, in our careers, in our families, and so on, to another. And I liken it a lot, and many of you might think this is outdated, but I liken it a lot to Clark Kent walking into his phone booth and coming out as Superman. It's a quick transition. It's a different character going in. It's a different psychology going into that phone booth. It's a different mindset going in. And then coming out, it's a completely different person, persona, approach, image, all that. And similarly, I count that as being an athlete. We go in with the role we played during the day, or we currently play. It's not a a role. It's not something fake. It's just who we are at that moment prior And we come out of that phone booth ready to be an athlete. And like I always say, it's a mindset being an athlete. It's how you approach it. And your ability to quickly come in and out of that phone booth, in and out of that locker room, in and out of your garage on how you, where you're about to go on a bike ride or a run, whatever your changing location is, not just in clothes, but also in mindset and approach and in psychology and in ease and in focus and in exhale and in reconnecting with your body and in looking internally and listening to your breathing and what your mind is telling you, what your body is telling you, what your cadence is telling you, what your footwork is telling you, right? Being an athlete is even a more dramatic shift for many of us, but it's a great opportunity to practice and improve and hone skills that make you better and stronger in all the roles you play in life because then you start recognizing those shifts easier. You can flip that switch easier, whether it's going back from athlete to father, to parent, to loved one, to brother or sister, to family member, to career, to leadership role, to employee, to whatever it is, to community member, to church member, whatever it is. Those transitions, the clearer they are for you, the more effective you can be in each role. And so I have a variety of ways that I remind myself um, on how I, I move from these different roles through my personal phone booth and how quickly I transform myself to, uh, in, in air quotes here, Superman, right? One of those ways is self-talk. And positive self-talk is something I would say and I would recommend to everybody as much as I can. It's a hard skill to teach simply because you can't see the tangible, touchable results or you also can't see how it's implemented because it's not like technique or skill or form or posture in training. Um, Those are things you can view and see and diagnose. But self-talk can be a guessing game and very good to use, especially in training and then also in racing because your ability to talk to yourself on, all right, snap out of it. Okay, re-engage. Okay, am I aligned? What's my um, body posture? Let's do that um, body scan. 
how am I doing, right? How am I sitting on this bike? How relaxed am I? There's so much that you're asking yourself and having a conversation with yourself. I feel lethargic. The day is weighing on me. I feel heavy and slow. That's all negative self-talk. And the better we get at self-talk on flipping that switch and saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to happen today. This is my time. This is the time I can, can take control of everything that I do in the next 45, 60, 90, two out minutes, uh, two hours. My training time, I'm in control. And I am going to have the best possible outcome in it. Now, it might not mean that you feel great and um you know, bounding through the countryside as you're running on trails. Of course not. That's not how our body works. We are fatigued. I get that. But there's always positive value in every step we take in every workout. There's something to be done. There's something to focus on. There's some value to be gained. And even if it's not in fitness and in body, maybe it's in your surroundings and your appreciation and your understanding of how beautiful this day is and reflection and all those things. There's value to all of it. And the effects of self-talk are quite apparent. We all know that. And you see it in the athlete whose shoulders sag in the face of adversity, as I say, who slow down when losing to a teammate in a practice at a track or something like that, or who have difficulty bouncing back after a bad race. And good self-talk it becomes with being intentional. It's, like I said, having a specific um, knowledge of knowing it's going to be positive self-talk. And one way to do this that I've would help me in the past is write down um, a mantra or some sort of self-talk with where it can be visible for my upcoming workout. Now, for me, for years, I've been doing my workouts um, from my house because I work from home. And so in my garage, in my area where my heart rate monitors hang and my shoes are and my bike stuff is and all my gear is and my garments and all that, I also have race numbers hanging up. I also have tools hanging up. But those race numbers, those old bib numbers are a reminder of bad races. From any race that I had that I was not happy with the outcome or I was not happy with having done my best on that day or knowing deep down inside I was capable of getting my head out of my you-know-what and doing better that I had, whether it was like my own negative narrative with it or I just let the day slip away with from me because I sort of, I didn't give up, but I let it be good enough. That's a good way to describe it. I let that day just be good enough. Oh, I'm good enough here, right? But I know if I really had the drive and the focus and the positive self-talk in this case, that I probably could have done better. And in hindsight, we always know that. We all know that. We know when there was more to get. But anyway, those numbers are clipped to a pegboard there. And they're a daily reminder of, don't you forget on what happened and how you can be better today. And I also have some quotes and some mantras hanging there or uh, lying there or um, hung up there um, or written down uh, in certain spots so that I just have a reminder so that that first step, that first pedal stroke out of the garage is going to be in a positive mindset, in a um, growth aspect of being an athlete, that this first step is already making me better for the next 
um, event, adventure, or for the build of this week, or for the outcome of this month, or whatever it is either I'm preparing for or um, interim milestones I'm looking to achieve in a long training buildup. And that works the same, I believe, for many of you. You can put it in your garage, on the top tube of your bike, um, on a wall, on your treadmill. Um, I've seen kids um, at the pool or even master swimmers have a little mantra on their water bottle, on their kickboards, on their hand paddles, written on their hand paddles. So that, you know, all these places are just subtle reminders to, to snap out of it and have a positive attitude and self-talk with regards to your training. And sometimes that's all it takes. You see, I got this, or 15 more minutes on the top tube to remind you that you're capable of more than if you just started started shutting it down here, or that you're capable of more than you give yourself credit for, right? Like, oh, that's good enough. I've had a really good workout. Well, maybe one more really good interval, right? Maybe continuing to, because the road is clear and empty, just continue to ride this puppy out with good form and controlled wattage and heart rate or whatever that is. Or finish up this run with good posture and light feet and good form and relaxed shoulders and paying attention to how your feet are landing and how you're leaning and so forth. Just keep it together. And that's, it's extremely, extremely powerful. The other thing that you all know from this podcast is about five minutes of visualization um, every day. And for me, when I come out of that proverbial phone booth, there is a mental image of what I want to get out of this workout. Now, I do it during the day prior already, but I definitely reconnect with it on the, the, the route I'm going to take in my training on that run or on the bike or even as I'm going to the pool, I'm thinking about, okay, what is today's outcome? When it gets difficult today, what will I do? Um, when the interval and the breathing and the difficulty of the workout um, becomes to that breaking point, not that you can't anymore, but that you just sort of don't continue to drive fully through it and instead sort of just stay in control, stay comfortable. Now, comfortable is a very difficult term for many people because it means something different for um, different athletes. My comfortable, I know, usually is still pretty hard and still digging pretty deep, but not really closing it out to the best of my ability. And so, um, if, that, if you were to think of that in percentages, I call that more that I get to like 90%, but I won't give that last 5 or 8% to really um, exhaust myself. And I have to remind myself before workouts, all right, today when it gets difficult, I will prepare for that. I will prepare for when it really gets hard, right? And in swimming, I was always lucky um, to sit there in the pool close my eyes and start visualizing what the best in the sport, how they might be approaching this set, right? You can quickly connect to, and I've been lucky also in situations where I've been in a pool where a couple of lanes over are some of the best in the sport, are gold medal winners. And you look over and you, and I would close my eyes or start thinking during the next interval, like, wait a moment, 
how are they doing it? And what are the best in the world? How are they approaching this set? And so similarly for you, carve out five minutes before your next session or practice or workout and visualize visualize yourself doing it, um, doing your activity, whatever that is, like a complete professional, like the best in the world do it. In the world do it. Um, how does a world-class trail runner approach today's run? You know, how does a world-class cyclist, a world-class triathlete, how do they approach today's workout? A lot of us watch, um, I don't, but I, I get a lot of feedback from a lot of people who watch other professional triathletes or professional athletes on YouTube or on Instagram feeds and so forth on how they're training. And that's a great tool to use of like, look at how they're approaching their workout. Now, I don't necessarily believe in those because a lot of those you can say, all right, well, he's recording his good day. She's recording their day where they feel inspired and sharing it. They're not showing the tears. They're not showing the failures. They're not showing the coaches just dropping the stopwatch and walking away. Um, those are the workouts that I want to see. I want to see the YouTube workouts where um, professional triathletes are failing, where it shows that they can't put out any watts, where they have hit a wall, where their coaches are seeing the repeats at the track that are not up to par, and then what they are doing to overcome. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Carve out five minutes before your next session where you know it's going to be a high quality session or there, there's going to be some difficult sections in that bike ride, for example, and visualize yourself doing your activity like a complete stud, right? And how they would do it. And having done this consistently over the years, I can attest to its effectiveness. The visualization gives you a benchmark for how you want to feel today and give you, gives you some moments of quiet, not only mindfulness training, because that visualization really puts you into the present day training, hour training window, and it helps you become really more focused. Our brains have difficulty distinguishing between real and perceived experiences, as we know from visualization. And in a limited sense, it's through this visualization, through closing our eyes, whether it's before a workout or at night going through our future races or um, our future events, especially triathletes, this is very, very helpful with regards to transitions. It's actually getting more race pace work in without the physical uh, demands of the training. And visualizing, for example, transitions is a very powerful tool. But that's visualizations with regards to races. But you can also visualize and practice daily how you're going to visualize this, this upcoming workout as you're changing in the locker room, as you're tying your shoelaces. Take a moment, just 30 seconds, just two minutes and say, all right, while, you know, I know somebody, um, he's a really good athlete. And he sits and lets his um, Garmin find the signal to the satellite, right, to get the, to, to be ready to take all the paces. And while it's sit, he's sitting there waiting for it to um, find the signal, which doesn't take that long. Maybe it used to take longer. But in that time, he closes his eyes. And I've asked him, like, what are you doing? And he, he says, I'm visualizing today's workout. I'm visualizing myself executing it 
to the best of my ability. I'm visualizing myself running that track workout. This happened to be a track workout. Um, light and fast and just bounding and flying over the track, uh, across the track and doing all the strides and drill work and mile repeats and 800 repeats in a very um, smooth but yet powerful way. I loved that. I mean, it didn't take him long. It took him maybe 90 seconds, but he tied his shoelaces, started the watch for the, for the signal, and took those 90 seconds to find his best possible outcome today in his mind. And then when he did need to do it, now it wasn't as probably as beautiful as he had envisioned, but he surely created a better connection between his desired outcome and his current state of what he was doing. And the, as we close that gap better and better, the more effective our workouts are. And like I said earlier, coming out of that phone booth, going back to becoming a family um, man, going back to becoming an employee, going back to the leadership role in your career or whatever, or the project or the team that you're on. Even there, taking two, three minutes and closing your eyes and saying, I've done this too. You know what? I'm going to chill out and be more patient this afternoon with my children. Or I'm going to go back to the office and make sure I do these three steps because I have not been present with regards to checking in with my employees, with regards to following up on the human side with some of them. I'm going to go back to the office after the swim workout at lunch today, and I'm going to focus on these three priorities. I'm going to, if I feel, if I can execute those three effectively, I'll have a good Good afternoon. It's a reset. It's a recalibration. It's effective in so many ways. Our phone booth example and visualization. You know, and visualization can be incorporated in your workout as well within it. Um, they had, I read a study where re they researched elite track athletes performing a quick visualization one to two minutes before a sprint effort. And they significantly outperformed the control group um, that use just a, 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 you know, here we go, let's get ready, let's get fired up to go. So again, visualization and within the workout and sh shortly before the workout really allows your mind to connect to the best possible desired outcome. Another thing that I've found in the past that's very helpful is um, writing out or capturing maybe even on a, on, on your iPhone microphone, um, uh, voice memos, excuse me, what your emotional state was like before your perfect race. Or um, in a lot of race reports, I ask when the race went really well or this was basically their best result and they felt amazing. I also try to say, okay, well, besides the race data and what you ate and drank and so forth, tell me how it felt right before the event. Because most prefer sort of a white knuckle approach when it comes to being mentally ready to do your best, which is kind of odd because if athletes spent as much time researching gear, races, data points, Strava, all the noise and how the other competitors are doing and their, their splits and so on, and they spent that with their mental approach instead, they'd be ridiculously more consistent in their results. And committing um, this, 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 uh, I would say, hack to a mindset 
starts with getting a good understanding of what your emotional and mental state looks and feels like when you're at your previous best. Capturing that and recognizing that. Spending a few minutes writing out what your mental state was like before the times you have performed, executed, achieved your best. Remember, it might not be your best time, but you feel like you really were present and executed everything in that day ideally. That is a great data point to connect. And um, it gives you what an elite performance a mental blueprint to work backwards from, right? It, it You basically did everything that you look to achieve when you visualize for the future. Now you have a blueprint from the past on how it felt amazing, and you can start breaking down those pieces into um, something that you've captured. And that ties into sort of a daily process also, right? Um, three to five things that you are able to capture that would make um, today's workout and session when you come out of that phone booth um, as effective as possible. Again, a mindset approach. What are you gonna do each day to make that big, substantial goal a reality? And that might be two or three things where that you can then, as you're tying your shoelaces, as you're leaving the garage, as you're going, getting changed in the locker room for a swim workout, as you're about to head out on the trails, as you're about to clip in on your bike and sort of ride through the neighborhood to get to the main training area, you can go through that checklist, right? What are the things, if done consistently, that would have the biggest impact on your desired outcome? And those could be three to five things that you know, if I do these three to five things correctly or fundamentally um, at its best, then I will be successful, right? That you can sort of turn it into a process-oriented outcome. I hit these three to five intentional things today in order to have a good workout. Again, it's another way to come out of that phone booth and immediately jump into the athlete's mindset. You know, a daily process like this. Um, and again, you know, a lot of us want to want to write down way too many things we need to do to get better. And it's it's a good thing to have a, a longer list, but you want to keep it simple in this case. Starting with three or four or five things will kickstart sort of a chain of excellence that will eventually infect the rest of the workout and things that can be improved upon because you're focused on three to four or five really key uh, factors. And what happens is you'll find even in your own process, even in your own mind, even in your own perspective, excellence is contagious, even in its own self self-contained space where you're in your mind, you're like, wow, those drills, I really executed great. Next thing you know, you're running those 400 repeats really well. Next thing you know, those bounding hill repeats on the trail are really, really powerful and connected. It just becomes a contagious um, snowball that grows and grows into having, again, the best possible workout. And it started with just resetting for a few minutes while you were tying your shoes or visualizing or having going through your daily process of knowing the five, three to five things that you want to improve on or capturing that emotional state before being your best or, you know, um, that positive self-talk that I talked about. 
of allowing yourself to have the best possible outcome. That's the key, allowing yourself to have the best possible outcome. And then finally, what I often do if um, I'm about to approach a different uh, a workout that I know is challenging for me, or I know I'm preparing for a type of uh, um, event where there's going to be some challenging pieces to it, I try to um, have some performance cues that I will use in training in order to then have them really immersed in my mind when it comes to race day. And what that means is they, they are those performance cues, I remind myself when I come out of that phone booth, today is that type of workout, right? Because I've talked about this on the podcast that before, as my dad, when I wake up in the morning, I know based off of a what I see on my computer with regards to today's workout, but also what today's workout will bring. I already have the whole week sort of in my mind prepped um, for myself anyway. And I know today's an 80 mile ride, for example, and I have three one hour intervals at 260 to 280 watts. But every 20 minutes, I need to put in 10 minutes of uh, uh, 280 to 300 watts, right? And so let's say I'm getting ready for Kona. And in this case, I know in the past, out of all my Konas, I've always struggled or mentally hit a wall or physically run into um, some barriers at about mile 80 on the bike. It's, um, it, it's a long climb coming back up towards Hualalai and the airport and you're about 75, 80 miles into the bike. And the cruel thing in Hawaii is also that there's mile markers every mile. So you know exactly where you are on the side of the road because it says, you know, mile 75, mile 76. And you know mile 100 is um, Kona, right? Um, and you've done your 12 miles prior. So literally in Kona, you, you turn at mile 100 into town and ride maybe another uh, mile through town to the pier in order to be done. So the main meat of the course is 100, and 100 miles, but you do um, seven, eight miles in the beginning on the way through town on a loop, and then you have another mile at the end. So now we're at 108, and I think it's, um, like I said, uh, 52 miles to Havi and 52 miles back or something like that, if I remember my breakdown of the course correctly. But anyway, you recalibrate the mileage on the return so that you realize I'm at mile 80, mile marker 80 on the Queen K, and you know that town is 100, so you know exactly where you are on the course. And I've struggled there. The winds often have shifted, you're in a headwind, and it's the first time in your day that you're really starting to hit the fitness. The, it comes easy until then, or comes controlled until then, or come, be, remains familiar with regards to the difficulty until then, and then you get to that proverbial, all right, and for me that barrier was mile 80. So my performance cue for, uh, for that um, struggle would be in these workouts, I would go on a certain section of road, a certain loop, a certain course that I really despised. Um, there's a part, there's a course here in Marin that I don't like. I don't like going south on the 101, not the 101, pff, on the Highway 1 um, from the town of Olima to Stinson. 
it's just difficult for me. I don't know why. It's a, it's a hard course. I lose rhythm. Um, I don't get a lot of um, momentum in holding good wattages. Um, it's choppy. And then you end up in Stinson where you have to do a big climb over Mount Tam in order to get back to anything anyway. So it's just a part of, uh, of a ride that I've always struggled with. My performance cue has been that when I've had these rides, as I'm getting closer to Kona, was, all right, well, you are going to do one of your intervals. You're going to ride your course um, so that one of your intervals, and hopefully the last one, will be on that section of road. Make it difficult for yourself. It's a performance cue that I found was pretty simple. So simple that the effectiveness is actually almost ridiculous. Um, just putting myself into a situation that's equally hard, right? Um, and I break my race down into sections and then assign um, to each section a short cue, word, or phrase. So for example, for Kona, knowing at mile 80 to a 100, I would have a certain cue or phrase or um, verbal um, self-talk out loud I would do it out loud on the bike in the race of, um, in this case, this is where it gets hard. This is where you become an athlete, or this is where you show that you want to be the best. Or um, if you want to set yourself up for your best day, for the result you want in Kona, it begins here, right here at mile 80, right? And so I would do the same performance cue on a training ride where I'd say, this is the last 20 miles of Kona. Here we go, right? This is how I want it to feel. And I'd start visualizing myself being in Kona on that stretch of the Queen K. But many of you know, as my athletes, there's other performance cues I give you. Um, fear is one of them. Fear means focused, efficient, aerobic, and relaxed. That when you're in the aero position and things are going pretty smoothly, that you're focused on, on your bike and on what you're doing and your body scram. You're efficient in your pedal stroke. You're not mashing. You're not pedaling squares. You're not forcing it. You're um, aerobic, you're cutting the wind, you really feel good about the wind going around you and over you and that you're able to slice through it quite efficiently. Again, there's that focused and efficient. And that you're relaxed, that you're not forcing yourself to do anything here because those are the easiest miles. If you can be focused, efficient, and aero, but in a relaxed state. And many of you have felt this. Many of you know what I'm talking about. And the same thing can be done with running and breaking down your course, breaking down your desired um, event into um, different performance cues and outcomes and focus sections and mantras that you want to apply, right? I talk a lot with trail runners about run the runnable sections so that they get to long stretches of somewhat rolling or flatter terrain and they run that. And we think about light feet and um, 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 running on air almost through those sections. Yes, we know that we're going to hike, fast walk, um, manage the hills. And then we have a mantra for that, a performance cue, which is um, um, flatten out the hills on cycling aspects, as well as um, on trail running. I talk a lot about getting through hills. How do we get through long climbs? How do we get through this long mountain ascent, right? And that is, in most cases, 
using the least amount of energy by, by fast hiking or hiking up and eating and fueling so that we're then able to run the runnable sections as effectively as possible again. And so that's how that works. Performance cues are like sort of a checklist that you can even put out there on your bike or on, you know, um, on your, in your pack or whatever you're taking with you on, a, on an ultra run in an event where I've had athletes write it on their arms. Um, you know, uh, uh, and they don't need to put mile one to 20. They know because they've practiced, right? Cues allow you to stay focused and not get distracted by what's going on around you and can help even you focus on technique from completely falling apart, for example, at the tail end of races. And cues are completely customized to you. You can have fun with them, right? Um, you can have certain sections that I've talked about a lot for, let's say, triathletes running off the bike, right? I call it um, find them, hold them, push them, and shut them down. And a lot of athlete, my athletes know exactly what I mean by that. That's find your legs. Now that might take 20 minutes, 30 minutes, two miles, three miles, four miles. Hold it, which means hold the pace, the effort, the feel, the posture, the form, the technique. Hopefully that lasts a bunch of miles too. Then push them, push those legs, push that turnover, push that effort, push, see what's available, see what you still can do, and then shut it down. Now, that's usually in a, in a training environment that we shut it down, as in cool, cool down, warm down. But, you know, after push them in a race would usually hopefully be the finish line or one last push to bring it home. But those are the ways to break up your races with performance cues, and you want to be able to practice that in training. So you know this workout coming up ahead, and as you're tying your shoes, as you're putting on your cycling shoes in the garage, as you prep in the locker room for that swim, as you're getting ready for today's quality um, discipline for whatever event you're getting ready for, that you have, all right, today I'm going to work on the easy speed. I'm going to work on the free speed aspect of my marathon prep. And then, or today, I'm going to work on the pacing where I just focus on um, race pace, right? Where you then set it up, okay, I'm going to put all three or four of my things together. I'm going to do free speed plus pace plus pushing the effort, seeing what's available to falling back to race pace. Different aspects like that, where you can also, in swimming, think about how you're going to breathe or how you're going to um, increase your speed. I'm going to speed it up here. Cadence plus uh, a turnover plus force on my hands and pulling more water equals more speed. So what do I want to do at this far end of the course at this buoy? I'm going to turn and start increasing the cadence and turnover of my freestyle while also continuing to grab good, powerful water. And that's how I'm going to swim from buoy X to buoy Y. So uh, I think uh, you guys get the points. <laughs> so anyway, the phone booth, Clark Kent going in, Superman coming out maximizing your training time. Again, that's always our point with the training here and, and um, with coaching that we use and maximize the limited amount of training time we have. Using these 
mindset tricks and approaches and resets and calibrations so that as soon as you come out of that phone booth, as soon as you start your workout, you're already in the effective phase of your training, of your desired outcome, of your adaptation, of your growth. And also the better we get at this, the better we apply this, the way the more we can use these um, uh, four or five things that I've talked about today, we can also use those as we return from athlete to being whatever it is we're being for the rest of the day, a father, a mother, an employer, a team member, um, a leader, um, a project manager, a team um, leader, whatever that is, um, a soccer coach, um, a, a church, uh, our work in the church or in our community or however that is, we can switch it the same way going from athlete to what is my afternoon look like? Or what does the rest of my day look like? And how do I want to use these um, mindset approaches to maximize the value and the contribution with that rest part of the day, right? Um, mental training can seem like it's a deep and um, difficult um, uh, thing to do every day, but it doesn't have to be. It, you have these windows and you have these cues and you have these visualization opportunities and you have these reset buttons as you walk out of every type of phone booth as we want to call it locker rooms changing rooms garages even your car right moving from um going to going for a run a lot of times you can also think of these things as you're running out of um, a more bustling busy area before you get to the pretty area that you run or the trail before you get to the trail or as you're riding your bike out of the busy town and sort of before you get to your intervals and so forth there's always opportunities to reset and focus mentally on what we want to do with regards to today's workout how it relates to our um events and our races and again to really really recalibrate and reset and reconnect to our best possible outcome for this short window that we have to ourselves it's our time let's maximize our training time every day so that we have the best possible outcome we all went pro in something other than sports right and so let's take that time but still treat it as though we went pro in this sport. Let's maximize the limited windows. Just because we don't have six hours to, a day to train doesn't mean that that one hour can't be just as good, just as focused, just as successful, just as um, outcome driven, just as um, positive with regards to mindset and visualization and self-talk and performance cues as a professional athlete is. So I hope that helps. All right, that'll be it this week for the Weekly Word Podcast. I look forward to episode 84. Please let me know of any questions or feedback or, or insights you have that you think I could make this podcast better um, and provide more value to those that listen, as well as to you, all of you, my athletes. I'm always I'm curious to hear what you would like to hear more about and what you think of the podcast. So thank you so much for listening this week. I have a variety of ideas that I want to implement over the next few weeks. And guess what? And we're starting to get close to a milestone. We're at episode 83. 
soon 84, and that episode 100, I think um, we're going to do something really uh, different and unique and special, and I'm organizing that right now. It looks to be sometime in February, and I definitely have some plans around that and uh, some giveaways and some uh, a really, really fun, unique way to um, celebrate the fact that there's been a hundred of these Weekly Word episodes. So that's in the works. And uh, yeah, I look forward to organizing that and announcing that and talking about that and growing from there. I mean, that's at the end of the day. Also, this podcast is a great way for me to capture my thoughts and verbalize and learn and grow from it too. So have a great week, everybody.